On this day of the church here, we celebrate the uh, saints Constantine and Helen. And given this, I want to speak to you a little bit about today about politics. St. Constantine is probably one of the most controversial Orthodox saints. Uh, I mean, it's, it's fairly clear why. I mean, he, he had his, uh, one of his wife, uh, his wife and his, son, his one of his sons killed. He had, uh, uh, he, he was, he had coins minted in the early days of his, uh, reign as Caesar where show him, uh, with invict, uh, overlaid with Invictus Sol, the, the god of the unconquered sun. Um, and, you know, the legacy of having a, uh, empire that was Christianized under, as it was under Constantine or, and his successors, it's a tricky one. I mean, even some of our own theologians have said that, uh, you know, the, the, this, this, um, this phenomenon of having a, a Christian empire, you know, it was an interesting experiment. It's probably good that it's never, uh, likely never going to happen again. Um, but for all the, um, uh, bad, uh, press that Constantine receives, I think it's important to note a few things. And this is kind of what I, I want to draw our attention to today. Uh, first of all, it looks, if you look at the career and the uh, and, and, and the uh, policies of Constantine as he moves from uh, one of the Caesars uh, of the uh, Roman Empire, as it had been divided under Diocletian, uh, to the sole ruler of the Roman Empire, there does seem to be a significant shift. And that significant shift does seem to be, uh, cor- does seem to correlate with his own account of what he saw just before the key decisive battle with Maxentius, uh, who was the, the, the emperor of, of, of Rome at the time, but who was also, well, I won't go into all the politics, but it was, it was a tricky one. And, and Constantine was coming in uh, to, uh, after having stayed out of the conflict for quite a while. He was finally coming in to say, to in some ways liberate Rome from, from this, this uh, rather kind of, questionable Augustus or Caesar or whichever he was, uh, at, 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 who, who's, who, and, and so, but it, it was, he didn't actually have a lot of men in this battle. He, he was probably outnumbered about two to one. Um, and uh, he had come in and taken the northern part of Italy, but Maxentius was in Rome, as he had, obviously, the, the, the strong uh, uh, the stronghold of Rome with its great walls, uh, and, and Constantine was coming up to it. And yet all was not well because the, the, the citizens of Rome were not happy with Maxentius. And so Maxentius figured, well, I don't really think I can survive a siege here. Uh, and so he actually went out to fight Constantine in the field. He built a little, uh, a bridge because, uh, boats because, uh, the, um, it had all the bridges across the Tiber destroyed, uh, and 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 he took out his men out of the city of Rome across this bridge and lined them up. And Constantine lined up his forces, and as 
Maxentius's men looked out at Constantine's forces, they saw something that they hadn't seen before. On the shields of the, uh, the, the, of Constantine's men was a symbol. It was the, the Greek letter he combined with the Greek letter rho, which are the first two letters of Christos. And they were led, uh, uh, possibly, by a cross. Because Constantine, just on the eve of this key battle, had had a vision. And the vision said to him, he saw the cross in the sky uh, uh, glowing brilliantly, and, and, and a voice came from heaven saying, in this sign conquer. And so Constantine, being a good military guy, uh, you know, one of the things that if you were a, a good military general and in, in an age where you believed in the gods, it was pretty important to get the right god on your side. And Constantine did have another significant influence in his life, namely his mother, uh, who became later the Empress Helen, uh, Helena. Uh, and, and she was a Christian from the very beginning, and she had, was this influence on Constantine. And so it's, it's fascinating to see this, this, this difference in Constantine's uh, policies and procedures before this point and then at the Battle of, I, I can't remember what bridge, I think it's called the Milvan Bridge. It's like basically this pontoon bridge. Um, he, with outnumbered two to one, charged, uh, the, uh, uh, defeated Maxentius's cavalry charge, then had his men charge, and the whole uh, Maxentius's army just basically fell apart and fled, and, and uh, Maxentius himself was drowned in the retreat. At which point, Constantine became the emperor of the Western Roman Empire. Eventually, he became the emperor of the whole of the, uh, of the Roman Empire. Uh, but at this point, you start to see his policies shift. He now begins to uh, promulgate uh, for, with, with his co-emperor the, the Edict of Toleration. And Christianity, which up until this point, and only very recently had been uh, subject to really intense persecution, the Christian church suddenly was legal. You could actually be a Christian. You could actually have a church building. You could actually go and worship in that church building without fear of the police coming and knocking on your, uh, the church doors and coming in and, and you know, dragging you off to be beheaded or whatever else. Worse. And so the Christian church was then faced with this phenomenon. And how did, they how did they deal with this phenomenon? Well, we can see part of it, uh, part of how they dealt with this phenomenon in uh, the gospel, uh, sorry, the, the Old Testament readings that we heard last night. If you, if you look at those, it's very clear that the church saw Constantine as the fulfillment of prophecy, as God being at work in this event. Because uh, the, the, the scripture readings are prophecies from Isaiah, where Isaiah says, look, your, uh, you, the people of God, uh, will eventually bring all, have all the Gentiles coming in to worship with you. And that's exactly what the church then went on to experience. Because 
at that, once the emperor was a Christian, well, and once the, the, the religion was legalized, but also the emperor now is a Christian, the emperor of the single unified Roman Empire now under Constantine is a Christian, or at least clearly favoring the Christians, you then start to have this whole influx of people. And so then the, 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 the second and the third responses of the church come into play kind of more or less simultaneously. Because on the one hand, the church then, in, in response to this influx of people, realizes that it has a job to do. It has a really important job to do. Because any number of these people are coming in, you know, more or less because there's political opportunity here. Uh, they're not necessarily as committed as all the people from before when the church was a persecuted minority, because you kind of had to be committed at that point. <laughs> if you weren't, uh, what, what are you doing here? Because the, the Romans could be dragging you out of the church any moment now and, and beheading you. Uh, so, so there's a huge, significant demographic shift, both in terms of the number of people coming to church and the kind of people, the motivations of the people coming to church. And so what does the church do? It, it elaborates on and makes very, very clear the expectations of anybody who wants to come and, and, and participate in this way of life. And it does so with the, the, the very public penitential disciplines of the church at the time, which was to say um, the, the, the various canons uh, were, were implemented and implemented with a fair degree of, of, of acrivia, of strictness, uh, so, such that uh, if you, you know, were engaged in sexual immorality, uh, you were out for at least a year, out of communion for at least a year. And out of communion didn't just mean you don't come up and take communion. Out of communion meant actually you were standing back there in the narthex and you weren't actually allowed to come any further into the church. And everybody who was coming into church would walk by you and say, oh, well, what did that person do? Uh, and, 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 and you had to persist in that penitential discipline until your time was up and then you would come and be reconciled to the church, which as I've said before, is kind of the part of the basis of our, uh, of, of our current um, right uh, uh, sacrament of confession. So, and, and this was the church just making really, really sure, really, really clear that everybody understood that this was the expectation from the lowest of the low right up to the emperor himself. Which is possibly one of the reasons why Constantine didn't get baptized until his deathbed. Because uh, it wasn't very clear at this point how one could be a Christian and could be an emperor. I mean, it, it, the, the emperor was Pontificus Maximus, uh, Pontifex Maximus. He, he, was, he, he, was the, uh, he was the head of the pagan religions. Uh, and so there were all sorts of things that had to change and which did change under Constantine. Um, as, he, as, as he is sorting out, how is it possible to be a Christian and an emperor on a personal level? Uh, so then the other half of the, of the church's response, which as I say happened more or less simultaneously with this, was the flight to the desert. Uh, the, the, because the monks recognized at least two things. First of all, there were no martyrs anymore, which was great. On the other hand, 
the witness of the martyrs was powerful because the martyrs witnessed to the power of Christ's resurrection. Uh, and because, you know, they, 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 no matter how many people the Romans killed, they would go singing to their death at times. And, and there was just nothing that they could do, even at the worst tortures imaginable, didn't induce these people to leave the faith. How, do, how was this possible? Well, the only way that this was possible was because they understood that Christ had risen from the dead and that they would participate in this resurrection. And so that meant that the authorities had no power over them. But this was no longer the case. And so the flight to the desert was in part uh, a flight to a life of martyrdom, a living witness that they could live in this totally inhospitable land by the power and the grace of God with giving up all the comforts and, 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 and things that, that, that would... That, most people would see is as the point of life, <laughs> the things that make life livable, uh, because they love God. They wanted to be devoted entirely and completely to God. And that's the other half uh, uh, of what the, what the flight to the desert was in part about. As soon as you are involved, as soon as you have this in, if you will, with political power, there is always this uh, potential for corruption. And so the, the flight to the desert was a flight out of that world system to say, okay, how can we live out Christ's teachings in the most radical, the most pure, the most um, non-connected with anything that could be seen as corrupt way possible? And, and, and that's exactly what the monks did. They lived by the work of their own hands in the middle of the desert, uh, which nobody particularly wanted to live in, and 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 prayed, spent their lives in prayer. And as this happened, the church, recognizing this phenomenon, uh, said, okay, well, this is great. We now have a pool of people from whom we can draw the bishops, because the bishops were, of course, the ones who would be the most subject to temptation, the most subject to political pressure. And so well, you really wanted somebody who didn't care about all that. So if you could pick somebody from the, the ranks of the monastics and make him the bishop, make him the, 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 the ruler of the church, then you can, it's no guarantee, but it's at least better odds that this is a person who doesn't care about all the things that people will offer him. So politics in our day is, on, in some respects, very similar, and in other respects, very different from what it was in Constantine's day. Uh, but I think there's probably more similarities uh, than differences. Uh, we, we live at least in what's supposed to be a democracy, uh, which is nice, we get to vote, uh, and as such, we are political beings. We need to figure out how to be involved in politics uh, to whatever extent God gives us. You know, in Constantine's case, it was like, oh, well, this is an opportunity to get involved in politics. I guess I better go and do this. Uh, and, and it necessitated certain difficult compromises, difficult, challenging decisions, which were on some level questionable, uh, which, as I say, is another reason why Constantine uh, 
probably delay another reason why he delayed his his baptism right until just before his death um because these were these were questionable decisions i mean if if what you're weighing up for example in constantine's day is okay well um my uh, my wife and my eldest son are plotting against me this will throw the empire into chaos uh and this could cause hundreds of thousands of deaths uh through through military campaigns and starvation and whatever else do i do i kill my wife and kid or do i let them kill me it's not, there's like there's no really good answer here um and and yes it's absolutely horrible that this happened and that he had to do this but i mean there are very difficult harsh political realities that he's dealing with um so we obviously don't aren't probably i don't think any of us are at that level of decision making <laughs> uh, uh thankfully thank god uh um but we do we do participate in this political process and so we have to consider that yes the political process is one that has puts people in these impossible situations and these impossible decision making situations this is one of the reasons why we pray for those in authority over us why uh there's a reluctance of christians to get involved in politics priests for example are not supposed to be involved in politics but we can talk about politics so <laughs> i just don't get political um cuz it's important this is part of what we are dealing with you know we live in a society which may give us freedoms if so great we 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 thank god for those freedoms uh and it may not give us freedoms if so great we continue to exercise our freedom of speech even when it's taken away from us because the consequences ultimately don't matter to us not in eternal terms anyhow i mean as christians we want to fight for good things like freedom of speech and say oh, yeah yeah there's impor- it's important to repent uh, to uh, to have the opportunity to make mistakes to change your mind to be able to say what you think and and express what you understand to be true uh even if you know the guy over there is crazy and i'm not right uh, his uh, his opinions are weird mine are obviously very very grounded uh but he has a legitimate right to his opinions and to the freedom of the expression of them because we want to do to him what we want others to do to us uh, uh on the other hand as i say if that is taken away from us glory to god we have an opportunity to suffer and to as paul says make up what was lacking in the sufferings of christ it's an amazing phrase so on the one hand we um th- we have this kind of weird um and and messy business of politics which necessarily impacts on us and the first thing we need to do is simply give thanks to god pray for those in authority over us and give thanks for god to god for what we have the second thing we need to do is we need to be strict with ourselves the church is not about judging those who are out who are outside the church we have no basis on which to judge them the church does however begin judgment with its own household as the scripture says judgment begins with the household of god 
And so we need to be strict with ourselves. And finally, the third point is we need to have grace towards those outside, towards those are, uh, uh, who are involved in the political scene, and towards, uh, you know, well, ourselves. Because unless we do engage, like uh, ourselves, participate in that flight to the desert, uh, go off and join a monastery, we are necessarily involved in this world. We're in the world, not of the world, but we're in the world. And so uh, that does necessitate certain compromises with just living in the world. Like if you have your, your money in a bank or in some sort of mutual fund, you don't have control over, or even maybe in the mutual fund, you might have a small amount of control over where, where that money goes and what it goes to. But there's all sorts of things going on behind the scenes that are being done with your money. You have no control over that. But that's okay. Because this is how God has allowed us to be, to live as members of a of, of this political body, which we call Canada, or the world, or whatever, however you want to divvy it up. Uh, we are in the world. Uh, and therefore, we participate in a system that we understand will always be, to some extent or another, corrupt and corrupting. But it's that very recognition that allows us to say, okay, well, if I have to participate in this system that is corrupt and, and even corrupting, I need to be on guard against its corruption. I need to speak up about its corruption. I need to be able to say the truth about how we should live, how we should be, and, you know, recognize that I myself am not, uh, as, as a member of this political entity that I am necessarily a member of, I myself am compromised. And therefore, I speak the truth, but I speak it in humility, and I speak it in love. So, St. Constantine, who, as I say, as far as I can tell from my limited understanding, and, and, and I would say, as far as the church has dealt with him in terms of recognizing him to be a saint, he is an example for us of how to negotiate. And don't go around killing your wife and kid. But, 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 but uh, that was before, right? Before he was baptized. Uh, um, but he's an example for us about the complexity, the difficulty, the challenges that we face as political beings. And he is an example for us as well in, to, in terms of how do we extend that grace to, uh, to, to others around us and to, to basically all of the people that we encounter? And how do we stay committed to this gospel that is so life-changing and transformative, uh, even as we recognize that we are involved in a system that is corrupt and corrupting? And as we continue in the footsteps of himself and his holy mother, Helen, who was this amazing influence on him and who herself uh, is probably in, in directly responsible 
on some level for the conversion of the empire, uh, certainly for the the the, uh, the commitment of her son to the Christian cause, um, and and thus for for the freedom of religion and freedom of expression that came out of that. Uh, these holy men uh, uh, examples to us, male and female, are what we need to look for, look to, and look past, look beyond. Because ultimately, we look to them as they follow Christ. We look to their examples and follow their examples as they follow our Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is ultimately the king. He is ultimately the Lord of all creation. He is the one whom we worship and serve and obey and adore, and it is him and him alone that we serve and obey with uncompromising obedience and humility and love to his glory, the glory of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, now and ever into ages of ages.